My name's uh, Dharmendra Kanani, uh, Director of Insights at uh, Friends of Europe and your moderator for this summit, uh, which we've billed as a landscape of division and transformation um, lies on the horizon. Um, we have a fairly illustrious panel to contribute to the opening session um, on um, climate diplomacy uh, uh, in a time of division. Um, we've recently heard the scientists tell us to get a grip, that we're not acting fast enough, that we need to invest more and do more. Mr. Trump has questioned the political motivation of the scientists. And in Europe, it's reported, it's reported, so that's about you, uh, Mauro, it's reported that uh, ministers aren't in agreement about whether to increase, decrease, or stay the same in terms of target setting. Um, that sort of sets the context for this opening session, really, and for this summit, which, in which we look at issues of climate diplomacy, we look at the need for and the pace of transition, and then looking at the future strategy in the third session, where we look at what needs to happen and how if we're going to get to, the, to meet the targets that we've been set, but also do we need to rethink the targets. Before I invite the first contributor, and I, those of you who've been here before, you know you've heard me say this, is that fundamentally, I think this is an issue of supply and demand. Uh, whether there's a, a question fundamentally underneath that is whether you take a free market approach or a managed market approach. There's issues around politics and leadership, which are key, as is behavior and behavior change. Uh, but what we do know at the end of the day is how we triangulate some of that is what matters. The pace at which we do that is key. And perhaps rather than simply talk about pace, is there a question here fundamentally about system change? Do we really need to rethink and reimagine and reframe the system if we're going to respond effectively to what the scientists uh, and what our experiences are telling us? So without further ado, uh, before uh, I would like to invite Daniela. Uh, but Daniela, you've been very close to the, uh, this, obviously to the report and what the scientists are saying. But I want to bring in the citizens just before... Because we run, uh, before I just ask you to say a few words, we have a debating platform for citizens. We have nearly three and a half, four million people um, who uh, engage in issues of the day which matter their lives, which are related to the EU. Uh, and this is what Ian from Spain is saying. Uh, Believe the science or not, the change is here. The risk is happening. Look at the news, go outside, feel the weather, ask farmers and talk about their crops. Check the butterflies, visit a hospital, and see all the subtle ways in which climate change is disrupting the world. Over to you, Daniela. How, tell us, I mean, that's a kind of, uh, it's a big, big ask, but you've, you know, you've, you've been very close to this, uh, to the report, the IPCC report. What is, it, what is it saying to us now, and what do you think the trend is going to be as we move, if we look ahead to the next 10 to 15 years? Yeah, thank you very much, um, Directly connected to the quote which you just showed, uh, that's what the, the report also states. It says, climate change is already affecting people, ecosystems, and livelihoods all around the world. So there's no questioning that with the warming of the last um, seven decades, which are up to um, roughly one degree now, changes have been observed in extreme weather events, and this is very likely to continue. The report is very special in the way that uh, more than 100 
uh, dedicated authors contributed from 40 countries all over the world. We looked at more than 6,000 scientific publications which are below the findings and the draft has been reviewed by more than 1,000 experts and government reviewers worldwide and we got 42,000 comments which we all answered. I think very, very important is that the, um, um, the, that, that the, the report clearly could state that we <coughs> have observed climatic changes with changes in extreme weather events and there was no one questioning that climate change is happening. In addition, it is very clear that a 1.5 or 2 degree aim is important and the report clearly states limiting warming to 1.5 degree compared to pre-industrial times is not impossible, meaning it is possible, but would require unprecedented transitions in all aspects of society. Mm. So there are no limits from a physical, chemical or technological way which is uh, which, uh, stated in the literature currently. It also states that there are clear benefits to keep warming to 1.5 compared to the 2 degree or even higher. And every single bit matters. If we look, for example, at the, um, at the um, comparison of uh, the sea level rise, the sea level rise would be less by about 10 centimeter at 1.5 degree warming compared to two, which would mean about 10 million fewer people would be exposed to risks. If we look at the reduction of climate-related risks and susceptible poverty, up to several hundred million of people by 2050 would be less at risk at 1.5 compared to two. It also states that, it is, as I said before, there are different pathways to get to the 1.5 or to the 2 degrees, and this would imply limiting uh, to 1.5 degree to reduce emissions of carbon dioxide by about 45% by 2030, compared to 2010 levels. This, of course, is a very challenging question, but the report also says, and then I think this is my final statement, it also says that um, the um, the most efficient way to, uh, to achieve those goals are when local and regional governments and decision makers are supported by national governments. Strengthening the capacity of national and subnational authorities, civil society, the private sector, indigenous peoples and local communities can support the ambition actions that would be required. And international cooperation is a critical for this to be achieved in all countries and for all people. So each half degree matters, each year which we wait or when we act matters, and each choice and each decision matters. Thank you. Thank you very much. So are, are you, is the report asking for system change? Yes, very clearly. Um, the, of course, the, the report is not policy prescriptive. Where the report is uh, putting at hand for everyone the information and all the possible implications. And it clearly states what is possible and what is not possible. But if we would want to limit climate change to one degree, 1.5 degree warming, and it states that we can limit risk for many ecosystems and hu human systems, then um, it asks for action. 
Okay. Uh, let's, let's come back to... Um, and I want to make sure the audience can engage in some of the questions that are clearly emerge uh, that occur to me uh, in my mind, but I, I'll, I'll hold on to those for a moment. But, Mara, let me go straight to you. Given what you've just heard and the need for local, regional action to be supported by national government, um, is the EU's current policy situation fit for purpose? Yes. Tell us how. <laughs> okay. Because you can say that, but I want to know how. How is it? Right. Given what you've just heard, um, we've, you know, uh, we know what the situation is within Europe. Okay, it's one of the biggest uh, financiers of, you know, climate finance. It's got all the kind of, it's proven the economic case that you can have, you know, GDP growth and act on climate change. But given what we've just heard, given what the situation is, tell us how it's fit for purpose. Look, we're talking here about the time of division, we're talking about climate diplomacy. If diplomacy is a means to forging common goals and common objectives, I think we need three things. And one of them is the one you just asked about. You need to have the right policies at home. You need to have the resources to carry out those policies. And you need international action and you need the resources for that. Now, we have the right policies. Are they complete? Do we have everything we need? Are we doing everything we ought to do? Of course not. What we are talking about is nothing less you know, the IPCC report talks about system transformation. Yes, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about turning around between now and mid-century an economy which we have built worldwide over a century and a half. Uh, and we are talking about turning around in a way that continues to ensure people's prosperity. You know, what the climate skeptics are playing on is that people will not accept to sacrifice their prosperity to save the planet. It's a fact. Let's live with it. We have to find a way to turn an economy around in such a way that it still guarantees prosperity. Now, in Europe, we have a legislative framework to 2030. We have the uh, resources. We have mainstreaming of uh, climate in uh, all our spending programs. We have, for the first time, national plans on climate that have to be coordinated, we will produce a first vision of a 2050 strategy that has to be implemented. Current policies, even the ones we, the ones we just agreed on, if they are projected towards mid-century, are not good enough. But you have to build policies over time. I mean, the notion that in the next 10 years you can take the European economy and flip it around by 180 degrees is insane. The notion you can do it in 30 years is far from insane. It's possible. Will we do it? That's a different story. It requires uh, an enormous political sure. uh, is, will. Sure. Is the pace, from your position, from where you're looking, where you think about this in the context of what you've heard, is the pace the right one? And given what we're hearing everyone, everywhere is actually, you need to act now in the next three to five years if we're going to hit some of the stuff that we need to do in the next 20 years. Do you feel the conditions are right now? Wait a minute. Okay. What the action means. You cannot change things overnight. You cannot today say, sorry folks, from tomorrow, no combustion cars on the roads. From tomorrow, no coal fire plants, no oil fire plants, no gas fire plants, because that's what we're talking about. 
We're not talking about dirty coal. We're talking about no fossil fuels. Can you conceive that tomorrow? We can conceive that in 2050. And that's what the pace we're talking about. We will need more legislation, we will need more measures, we will need more support policies. One decision needs to be taken now is where do we put our money in research? One decision needs to be taken in the next couple of years, and we are equipping ourselves for taking that decision, is where will our investment in infrastructure go? We'll need to build more gas pipelines. We need them now. We should not build gas pipelines that can only carry gas. We should build gas pipelines that can be converted into carrying CO2 if carbon capture works. They can carry hydrogen if we can foster a hydrogen economy. Those decisions need to be taken now. Investment in storage of energy has to be done now because that's the bottleneck for renewables. So you have to set up policies in a realistic but tight and tough framework, okay. and that's what we're doing. And that's what you're doing now. So yes. Is your R&D budget fit for purpose in this regard then? Is that, your, is that what you're doing, what you've just described? What we have proposed to the Council and Parliament is, in our view. Will the Council and Parliament agree? I don't know. Europe is a democracy, not the Soviet Union, as some may think. Okay. Right. I'm going to open that out because one of the, I mean, uh, before I take the other speakers, because I'm hoping that you are fired up or that you have questions in your mind from what you've just heard from our two panellists in the first place. I mean, one of the things about the report, going back to you, Daniela, is that, is that we need to find a way in which it's not prescription, but about saying, you know, in the context of the science, the context of what we know in terms of the likelihoods and the trends, what are the pathways you should choose? So does the report relate to R&D? Does it relate to how you kind of do some system change? But uh, uh, let me, rather than ask you that question, let me see if anybody out there has that question in mind. Otherwise, I'll come back to that question. So colleagues, we have mics. I think I can see you. Yes, the mics are there. Who'd like to have a go? Not literally. Who'd like to have a question? Who'd like to ask a question? Don't be shy. Really? You've, from what you've heard, you've got no questions in your mind? Ah, excellent. Gentleman at the back. So please say who you are. Thank you, Mark Johnston. Um, don't usually like to go first, but we'll kick things off. <laughs> um, I mean, pace is the key. I think, you know, without rehearsing the numbers, the pace needs to be at least three times faster. Um, like, you are from, sorry? Uh, I'm independent. Okay. Um, so over the 60 years between 1990 and 2050, from where we are now, the pace needs to be three times faster. Um, the question um, is, um, you know, when, I suppose, when will Europe, to, when will Europe uh, and the institutions begin to catch up? Um, the 40% target, at least 40%, is a target that was set under the Barroso Commission uh, almost five years ago. Um, the Juncker College has not moved on from that. So the question to Mauro on the 2030 target is when can we move on from uh, a target set by the past commission? Thank you. Okay, thank you. In, before I ask you to answer that, Mauro, uh, any questions relating to what you've heard from Daniela about the report? Anyone got any query or...? Okay. Perhaps I'm flogging a dead horse at this stage. I'm hoping you're going to... Ah, excellent. I meant that in the nicest way, by the way. But I'll, I'll warm you up, hopefully, to, to ask more questions. 
gentleman here. Again, please say who you are and where you're from. Thank you. I'm Robert Brown, the McCarrison Society, which won't mean much. What level of thought was given to impact on oceans? Ocean acidification, photosynthetic bacteria, and oxygen production. Because okay. if there is a threat, possibly 40 to 70% of our oxygen comes from the oceans. And if research were to show that there was a threat to oxygen supplies, it could be an extinction point for the species. And I think there is nobody who doesn't understand that we need oxygen. And all the focus is, is on climate and sea re- Okay. Right. All right. Thank you very much. Do you want to go first, actually, in terms of you know ocean matters? Yeah. yeah thank you very much. So indeed, the um, the the work of um, assessing the literature for the changes in the ocean have not made it very high up into the summary for policymakers. That's why it has not been um, uh, discussed much at now. But there is uh, in chapter three there there is a a large part of the impact on the oceans and mainly of course on um, on the warm water coral reefs and the ocean acidification and the role on on ecosystem extinctions in the ocean marine biology and the um, uh, the related consequences to fishery for example so um, there is a part in it and it is difficult to um, besides the warm water corals, to uh, clearly find differences between a 1.5 and a 2 degree warming, but there's a very clear trend that with the warming from now onwards, the, uh, the, the risks of the marine ecosystems has already gone to uh, large and high. So there is, there is a part in, in this, and you're right with this. Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you very much. Mara, the question of the target. <clears throat> First of all, targets are not set by the Commission. The Commission proposes, we propose a target. The European Council endorsed it in 2014. Uh, in the meantime, we haven't exactly sat on our hands. In the meantime, we have set in motion a massive amount of legislation to actually make that happen. Because it's so easy to set targets. Then you have to make them happen in the real world. And you they make that happen without taking jobs away from people, without destroying our economy, because otherwise your next target is going to be founded on strictly nothing. Um, now, we are putting in place the legislation, the policies to make that target happen. Actually, we will make happen more than that 40%. Uh, it is quite clear that with, with the legislation we have agreed, we will reach at least 45%. Is that enough? Of course not enough. The pace has to be increased, which is why the Commission is going to present at the request of the same European Council and the European Parliament a strategy 2050. It's not new legislation, it's not new target, but it is a demonstration that we need to accelerate the pace of change, that we can accelerate the the pace of change, that we have the technologies, that it is possible to decarbonize our society entirely by 2050, it's possible to reach carbon neutrality. Will we do it? I don't know. We will put that to our decision makers, who will take some time to decide, because again, we are a democracy made of 28 democracies, and sorry, we're slow, but we get there. 
feel your pain, Mauro, in terms of what you just said. Um, and obviously, given that we have the... the Okay, no, of course you're relaxed, but the reality is that this beautiful project is also bound by this kind of consensus approach and you've got this political um, uh, context which doesn't drive us in the direction we need to drive, fundamentally, and that seems to be an issue. Soviet Union supporter. <laughs> okay, thanks for that. Um, gentleman here. My name is Rainer Lütkehus. I'm EU correspondent for Energieinformationsdienst Germany. A question to the Commissioner. You said we will need more legislation, more, more laws uh, to, in, in face of the climate change. Will you propose um, reform, a new reform of the ETS? Okay, very specific. Not before the last one has actually entered into force and we've seen whether it works or not. We've just reformed the ETS. It enters into force next year. No, actually, it enters into force staggered between 2019 and 2021. Uh, we'd like to see whether it works. What I can observe is that the markets are anticipating it will work because the price of carbon has gone up quite sharply in the anticipation of a reform of that market. It hasn't even entered into force. So at the moment, yes, we think it's going to work. We'll see, and then we'll think about uh, another reform. Okay, I'm going to now move on <clears throat> to Melanie. Melanie Kandadin. Uh, Melanie, you've been, uh, you were a political appointee during the Clinton administration. You've worked under Obama. You haven't worked under Mr. Trump. Um, but I wanted to give you a sense of... Is, What, from your perspective, having watched that trajectory of development uh, in, the, in the US administration, is the current narrative on climate diplomacy an ugly one, or is there, are there seeds of hope? Um, well, this is about uh, climate and diplomacy, so I'm going to be diplomatic and just say that I worked for the Obama administration, as you noticed, or as you noted, and, um, and we thought that climate change was a very serious problem, if not an existential threat. Everyone in this room knows that the Trump administration uh, announced uh, last June, a year ago June, that it was going to pull out of the Paris Climate Agreement. Um, that does not formally go into effect until the day after Election Day in 2020. Um, so we are hoping that we have an opportunity for it to not go into effect. Um, uh, the glimmers of hope that we see in the United States is that uh, after uh, President Trump made his announcement that we were going to pull out of the Paris Agreement, 22 states um, said that they were going to, 22 out of 50, that they were going to work to meet uh, Paris climate agreements. A huge number of cities did. We went through and looked at uh, Another 11 or 12 states where the largest cities in those states said that they were going to work to meet Paris climate agreements. Uh, even in Texas, um, which I was surprised, the largest cities in Texas said that they were going to meet Paris uh, climate targets. Uh, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, Austin, and uh, El Paso, I think, said we're going to meet Paris uh, targets. 
1,600 businesses said that they were going to meet Paris targets. I believe about 60% of uh, Fortune 500 companies have efficiency or greenhouse gas targets. Um, many universities said that they were going to do so as well when, when the announcement was made. So that provides a lot of hope. What I would say about that, however, it is wonderful that all of these city, states, entities want to meet uh, Paris targets. There is no baseline. The 22 states in the United States that said they were going to do this all have very different baselines and targets, et cetera, et cetera. And so how we go about measuring progress and that they are actually um, uh, uh, working and, and achieving uh, those goals is another matter entirely. And, and it's a little bit like uh, the U.S. and Europe and the rest of the world. Uh, 22 states are doing it, but this is a global problem. And, uh, and uh, we all have to work together to, um, to uh, 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 address climate change. The, um, I wanted to say a few things about uh, urgency, and we believe that there is urgency in climate change and that we have to alter how we do business um, in order to uh, meet uh, Paris targets or uh, uh, the one and a half degrees, which is a, even more difficult than two, and, and I think they're both highly difficult. Let me say a little bit about what we see um, uh, uh, before I go to the boundary conditions, et cetera, et cetera, on industry and how difficult it is to change, let me say one other thing that we did in the Obama administration. Uh, uh, after the Russian incursion in Ukraine, uh, we, the energy ministers of the EU, uh, G7, EU was there as well, and U.S., uh, got together in Rome, we developed a set of energy security principles that were very different than the oil-centric energy security that we have thought of the last 30 or 40 years. Climate change was adopted as an energy security concern, um, uh, and another principle was that we should be investing in innovation. Uh, 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 we then launched Mission Innovation when we went to uh, Paris, which is a doubling of investment in clean energy R&D. Um, uh, and another uh, uh, one of those principles was efficiency. So G7 EU and the U.S. at that time um, acknowledged and built into their set of security principles that climate was a, a principle that we needed to be worried about. Um, the, uh, the, uh, I'm going to say one other thing. We talked a little bit about technologies here because uh, I can see I have 23 seconds left. Um, uh, we have done an analysis where we think we need to be investing uh, that the doubling of those dollars and the countries that actually agreed to and are doing it, we are not. Um, uh, the Trump administration is not. Um, battery technologies, that was discussed here. Um, we need earth-abundant materials for batteries. Right now, batteries, uh, the uh, lithium-ion, 96% of our batteries in the U.S. are lithium-ion batteries. We've done a down-select. 22, 22 states are now manufacturing lithium-ion batteries in the U.S. That builds up political and, and uh, economic investment in opposition to change. Um, but only five countries in the world are really mining or processing lithium. 
Uh, I don't think that the cost of that concentration is yet built into the price of lithium and cobalt is in one country in the world, Democratic Republic of Congo, uh, mines 60% of it. So batteries, earth abundant materials for batteries are very uh, important. Carbon capture utilization and storage, we do not see uh, the, uh, the uh, rapid switch away from fossil fuels. As a matter of fact, we see the opposite as the world electrifies and everyone knows that the human development index is directly correlated to electricity consumption. Um, uh, that we think we should be investing heavily in hydrogen, small modular reactors for nuclear and a range of technology platforms. And so I was, I'm done. <laughs> it says I'm done. Thank you. Absolutely. So, so I suppose my question to you is, I mean, given what you've just said, um, in that what happened during the Bush time and then what we know what's happening now, but also you pointing to earth abundant materials and where, where, it's, you know, where we should be focusing some of our attention. Um, from your perspective, seeing what you see, where do you, you know, where are you optimistic and where do you draw your optimism from about the pace of change or not? Well, I mean, you can be uh, optimistic and pessimistic at the same time. Um, I am optimistic that with the appropriate investment, we will have the technologies that we need to, um, to address the climate issue and hopefully to hit the two-degree target, although I do think we should hedge our bets and invest in adaptation as well. Um, so, so uh, I certainly wouldn't uh, 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 stop that kind of investment, but I do think that we um, are well on our way to having the technologies. I think that we need to be very mindful of, of equity issues and differences, um, both within the U.S. and around the world, um, uh, that we have electrified and other countries need to electrify, um, and that that is... Uh, and that we need to provide the technologies for electrification that don't kill the planet. And, um, and uh, we had a discussion last night about distributed technology, distributed generation. I think that's great for rural Africa. I just <clears throat> spent the summer uh, dealing with issues in rural Africa, but also in Africa and around the world. The number of cities with 10 million people or more is going to go from 31 to 41. I don't see distributed energy as a way to electrify those huge, huge uh, urban areas for the first time in 2008, for the first time in human history, more people live in urban environments than in rural environments. That's another technology we need sure. to invest in is smart, smart city platforms. So. Absolutely. Okay, thank you. Let's go. I'm sure people will, have to, will come back to you on some of the points you've just made, but I want to move swiftly on to Frank. Frank, um, you're with the you know, Global Green Growth Institute. You um, have a, a purview which is helpful to this debate in terms of you can look across the piece. And I suppose what lessons can we draw from what you're seeing, both, especially both in terms of how money is spent in development aid in development countries in particular, but also this question about if you look at the trajectory of growth, let's say in Africa in particular, in the next 10 years, a major, major climate change challenge is before us. So say a little bit about what your perspectives are on that. Thank you. 
So as you said, I, I lead an organization called GDGI. It's an intergovernmental organization, and it is a, a club, a club of countries that do believe that uh, they need to transform their economies to a path of green growth. And indeed, that, as Mauro said, uh, means they still want growth. They want growth, though, that is sustainable and inclusive. They've realized that the quality of growth really matters. We have about uh, 30 members right now uh, and about another 30 countries and regional organizations, including the EU, on their way to membership. Indeed, DG Klima is our champion in the EU uh, to join. And of our 30 members right now, about 15 have 100% uh, renewable energy targets by 2050 or earlier. And about eight of our members have joined the alliance to power past coal. So at the highest level, there are some strong commitments uh, in the right direction. But of course, those have to be translated into action. And there, I think we should at least look at some different countries. We have focused all very hard and long on the largest emitters, on China and India. Uh, and there, I think we see a lot of progress. If you go to China, it's amazing how much leadership in green technologies there is now. I mean, many cities are talking about green buses. Shenzhen in China transformed all its 16,000 buses to 100% electricity last year. India was a leader in reverse auctions, in auctions on renewable energy, achieving such low prices for renewable electricity, less than three kilowatts, less than three cents per kilowatt hour, that they have abandoned many of their plans for building new coal-fired power plants. So there's a lot of progress there. But then there's a second group of countries that we haven't focused on as much, particularly in Southeast Asia, very successful countries in growing their economies, Indonesia, Philippines, Vietnam, Thailand. Uh, that's the group of countries in the world with the largest portfolio of planned new coal-fired power plants and the lowest penetration of solar. So those countries, as we were discussing before we came in here, face the same challenges we see in Europe, uh, if I summarize that. There's quite a bit of will, but uh, I think there we have to focus a lot more on making things happen, if I can say that briefly. And then there's a whole lot of least developed countries and SIDS, small island developing states, that are extremely vulnerable and that have very high targets for renewable energy, uh, not so much to reduce emissions, but often these have only 20% penetration of the grid. So for them, the clean distributed energy is often a pathway to increasing access. Increasing access to energy or indeed uh, seeing growth in, in green jobs. Now the good news in just the last few years is that after many, many years of discussions on you know, clean sustainable development is sort of a moral imperative, you have to save the planet, it has suddenly become, in the last few years, something that is in the interest of your pocketbook. You know, the World Bank last week uh, in Bali also decided no longer to fund coal projects because, that's very interesting, coal is no longer the cheapest form of electricity. They said renewable energy is now cheaper than coal, so they will not fund coal anymore. And more and more countries are finding that out. But of course, they don't all have the information. Mm. But, you know, so we help convince governments that if you have small islands and the alternative is diesel, even solar photovoltaics with batteries for storage is already commercially attractive, is cheaper than diesel. So yes, European companies can step up and make investments in those kind of projects without needing aid, for instance. And we see a lot of excitement 
among cities uh, on electrifying their transportation, electric buses. Those are maybe not quite commercially attractive today, but very close. And then I would also want to say more and more countries are finding that more nature-based solutions can be a very large part of uh, both the solution and the opportunities. You know, so that means we have to find sustainable business models for livestock uh, in the tropical forest fringes so we don't keep cutting down the trees. We have to find ways of having sustainable business models so that the peatlands don't keep burning. Uh, but those are the exciting opportunities. Let me end with saying that who will pay, you asked. Mm. Uh, many companies that we talk to uh, then say, oh, how can we tap into climate finance? And that will not be the answer. Climate finance will be critical to demonstrate, to open markets, to show projects, but it won't be enough to make a big dent. Uh, even public finance, which is going to be much larger than climate finance by itself, is not going to be enough. In the end, it will have to be private sector investments. And I sit in panels and, and companies say, why would we invest? And we sit in nice hotels and we say, well, for the same reason you build this hotel, because it should be a commercially attractive opportunity. We think it is or it will very soon be. But when we ask why aren't you investing today, they often say it's actually government policies, either the wrong subsidies still in place for fossil fuels or not having the right uh, attractive policies that allow the private sector to invest. So that is where I think the sharp end of the stick is. We'll have to convince governments to put the right policies in place. We'll have to have some blended finance to lead the way for private investors. But in the end, it will have to be private investment. Can you point to a country that you can think of that actually has the right policy and conditions that you've just described? Even a small just to give an like example. Rwanda, for instance, is a champion in green growth. Not only have they banned one-time plastic uh, a long time ago, but I think we see a government there. You know, when I sat there with the Ministry of Construction once. We wanted to talk about sustainable houses. He wanted to talk about his new airport. And I asked him, is your new airport going to be green? And he laughed. He said, it's an airport, you know, for crying out loud. He said, oh, you know, really? Uh, we brought him experts from Singapore that showed him that his green airport was going to be cheaper than what he had planned. Indeed. They saved money. So sustainable infrastructure is an investment opportunity, and I'm very pleased to say that the Rwandan airport this year will be certified a green airport, probably the first in East Africa, if not all of Africa. Mm. So changing that mentality of what the green investments are, they're not necessarily too expensive. Absolutely. There is a, this, this piece, isn't there, about how do you broadcast more loudly, broadly, the fact that there is there's economic gain in this, there's skin in this game for economic benefit. And all you see is, you know, uh, certain examples across the world, but no one's actually really pulling that together and saying, this is the art of the possible. And I suppose I say that because we don't have the time opportunity that it's taken for renewables to get to the cheap end of the market, as it, as it, has, it has. I mean, you went from a position of deny, denying it, then it's taken 15 years, if not more, simply to get to the place where they're in the marketplace. We don't have that time, uh, in effect, if we listen to science. Well, lucky you, you have invited Helen Mountford on the panel later today, and she's come out with a report with her new climate economy that shows that there is a $26 trillion opportunity in sustainable Indeed. investment. Okay, let me open it up to people from the audience. Ah, lady there in the second row. There you go. <clears throat> Again, say who you are, where you're from. 
Yeah, good morning. Barbara Jings from Gas Infrastructure Europe here mm -hmm. in Brussels. Um, my question is more on how do we establish a technology-neutral attitude and position towards developing in decarbonisation. There's still a definite favouritism towards electrification without looking at the whole life cycle of where the fuel for the end product of electricity comes from. Okay, so Thank the you. question of tech neutrality. Um, there's a gentleman near you, how do you say? Ah, there, there just, just here with a beard, yeah. Again, say who you are. Uh, my name is uh, Shamsuldin from VULB. Uh, my question is to our American panelist, since she worked with uh, George Bush and Obama. Not Bush, no, Obama, yes. Yes. Ah, oh, okay, sorry. <laughs> For you. <laughs> sorry. So my question is, uh, when it comes to America, especially we know uh, that the imperial behaviorism is huge in America. For example, uh, when it was uh, war and terror, the American uh, president uh, said, either you are with us or against us. Now the climate change is a similar threat to humankind like uh, global terrorism. So do you think, as you gave in examples of 23 states, is it uh, be possible that U.S. can, without the, the Congress and the government or president, can achieve the climate uh, okay. uh, targets? So the question, I mean, it goes directly to what um, Daniela was saying, that actually governments need to support local regional action. And I also, it might be suggesting there's an inverse situation taking place in the States. So do you want to go, go on that very briefly? Yes. But first, the first question was about technology neutrality, and I can't help but saying that... I was going to... Okay. Indeed, the top priority would be towards technology neutrality is getting rid of fossil fuel subsidies because there's still tons of those in the works as well. Very well, very well made point. Um, the, uh, uh, this actually goes to technology neutrality and your question about whether the U.S. can still lead. The, I looked at the 2016 to 2017 CO2 numbers. Uh, EUs went up by about 2%. Uh, the U.S. Has went down by about 1%, our emissions. Um, uh, our uh, emissions from CO2 emissions from power generation have declined very dramatically in the last 10 years. And that is by and large because we are switching from coal to gas. The 61% uh, uh, is about almost 4 million metric tons of emissions reductions from electricity in the last 10 years. 61% uh, of that is from going from coal to gas. And the other 39% is from renewables. Okay. <laughs> I, one, one thing about technology neutrality, and I hear a lot about 100% renewables, and, and that is, we have regions in the United States who react very violently to 100% renewables. What they do like is coal or gas with carbon capture utilization and storage. And um, there are just simply regional differences in how we are generating our electricity. 
and, uh, and that actually plays very much into uh, electric vehicles as well. Um, we talked about electric vehicles here in <coughs> India or China or whatever. They're generating their electricity with coal by and large. And so that's not solving the, uh, the emissions problem. So okay. I think we do need uh, technology neutrality. We need to be looking at regions and developing technologies that help meet our climate targets, uh, uh, okay. but don't pick te te technology winners and losers. Mara. <clears throat> you wanted to come in. Thanks. Look, I think that the question of technology neutrality, in fact, hides a much bigger problem that you alluded to when you were talking about uh, renewables and the time function. Technology neutrality is a function of the, the technologies you have available and the time you have to develop them and deploy them. At some point, you run out of options. Today, take... Uh, energy, take energy carriers, energy storage, we are technologically neutral, still. If you look at automotive, people are complaining that we are privileging electrification over hydrogen. Our legislation doesn't, because it just says you abate your CO2 emissions. It doesn't say how. But if you look at what's on the market, where people are investing in, um, if you look at the constraints on hydrogen production, I can see why people are complaining. It's not in our interest, but we should have no illusions that technology neutrality is only a function of government choices. It's a function of government choices, yes. It's also a function of technologies available, and it's a function of the time you have. And then the time dimension. Look, I said earlier, Europe has the right policy in place, and we will do what we have to do. Yes. But the real challenge Europe has, climate is going to challenge fundamentally our, mode, our democratic mode of functioning. Mm -hmm. Europe, it's very fashionable to say Europe is in crisis. If you look at Europe, you always find a crisis somewhere. If you look at the past 60 years, you see a line of progress. Indeed. Our safety valve has always been time. When we have a problem, we do things a little slower than we would like, but we do them. With climate, it's the first time our mode of functioning will be faced with a real deadline. Indeed. With a real world deadline. It's in 30 years' time. It's still, we can still cope with that, but it will require a, an effort of political will from institutions, from citizens, from voters, which is going to be very, very difficult. Mm. And that's, it's, it's not, a, I mean, you make the point, but it's, it's a step change. It's, you can't, the point, the message you get from the report, from Daniel's report, is that, Doing business as usual in the same kind of uh, pay, uh, same kind of rhythm is not going to be enough. You're going to the quantum has to change. The quantum of effort has to change. Daniela. Yeah, thank you very much. I would like to bring in two more more um, information from the report. So one, of course, um, the report also talks about the significant increase in investment in low carbon options. That's I think that's what we discussed. I think it, it also talks about the fact that we have to start taking carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And for this, we have to get the technology in place. And there are already some options, like planting trees, uh, of course, uh, bioenergy combined with carbon dioxide capture and storage, land management options. But all these dioxide removals have large implications on food security, 
on ecosystems and biodiversity. So we need a clear research, development, and discussion into those um, needs, because no matter how fast we act, we have to think also about those parts of technology. I know this is a delicate issue, mm -hmm. but I would also like to bring to your attention something which is often overlooked. If we do not reach 1.5 and can stabilize at 1.5, we for sure will live in such a world for at least one generation before it gets even worse. So the report also tells you what is ahead of you, ahead of us. And it also says the emissions which are currently in the air will not warm up to 1.5, saying it matters what we do in the next couple of years and decades. So I think this is something which often is not, not perceived in this way, but it is telling you how a 1.5 degree world will look like. Mm. And that is what is ahead of us if we go through it to two or three or four degrees, which is also possible, or if we would like to stabilize the world in, a, in a climate conditions as they are currently, more or less. Absolutely, and the, the point you're making is actually people can't just simply be complacent and rest on their laurels because you can't t dial back. This one you cannot dial back, and that's why when we talk about timing, it is in the next two or three years, and I think we'll hear that more and more, but it's, I suppose... How do we turn this kind of narrative of fear into hope? Because, I mean, there, there is a fear. I think there is absolutely a case that it, this is doable. This is doable, but the issue is politics. You wanted to come in very briefly. Just mic here, please. And are there any industry people in the room? I know there are. Would you like... I would really welcome your view. Any private sector people? Great, thank you. Thanks very much. Just very briefly, it's Say, Colin Mountford uh, from the New Climate Economy and, and World Resources Institute. And just briefly to, to thank Melanie also for highlighting how much action is happening in states, cities, business, investors, etc. in the U.S. And uh, the World Resources Institute, together with various partners last uh, month, released a report adding all of that up and looking at the extent to which those states and cities and others are actually helping to achieve the, the U.S. Uh, uh, contribution to the Paris Agreement. And basically, the U.S. contribution um, was uh, 26 to 28 percent by below 2005 levels by 2025. The current policies, thanks partly to the Obama administration, thank you, but also partly because of these new actions by these non-state actors, will deliver 17 percent by 2025 under current uh, conditions. And if these actions are scaled up at the pace they're going now with new cities joining, new businesses joining, we could get to as much as 24%, which is in striking distance of what we had for US contribution. Now beyond that, if there's not federal action, it will not go anywhere near far enough. Mm. But right now, American states, cities, people are really stepping up. Great, good to hear. Thank you very much. Gentlemen here. Again, say who you are. And where you're from, thank you. <coughs> uh, Paul Bossens, Micromatic. <coughs> so, technology neutrality. We know the action is urgent, and we know that uh, people will not give up uh, their living standard. So, why are we not considering including the biggest energy source we have the technology for? So, if you look at it rationally, 
it's, it's safe, it's good for the environment, it's uh, cost effective, and it gives us energy security. Uh, and most countries out of Europe do it. Uh, Russia, China, or even the oil producing countries. So I think you so all your, know what so your question is source. what? Just your question is what, sorry. Why are we not considering that energy source? And I think everybody knows about what I'm speaking. Nuclear energy. Ah, nuclear. Right. I needed to get that out of you, sorry. So you're talking about nuclear. Okay, <laughs> right. Do any of you want to come back? Do you want to come back the, the, very briefly? When I listed the technologies that I think we need to be investing in, uh, small modular reactors was, was one of the top technologies I think is very, very important. Um, we've had some uh, uh, bad experiences in the U.S. with significant cost overruns for nuclear and uh, not giving nuclear a good name in the U.S., but I think we fundamentally have forgotten how to build nuclear reactors, and uh, it's just a huge capital investment. And $11 billion, a gas plant's a half billion dollars, basically, and so, so industry's looking at the two of them, and, and there's not a requirement on carbon. So... So nuclear in the rest of the world, I think, is, is an important option, and we should pay a lot of attention to it. Okay, that's interesting. Mauro? Three quick points. We are investing massively in nuclear fusion research. Nuclear energy, when you factor in real safety, is not that cheap. And there's an issue of democratic choices. We will see when we come out with a long-term strategy, we foresee a stable uh, portion of nuclear in the European energy supply. Uh, because a number of member states continue to believe in nuclear, will continue to use nuclear and invest in it. A number of them have decided not to or to get out of nuclear, and that's a matter of democratic choice. That's why you don't see nuclear as a major element, because in a number of countries people don't want it. Where they want it, it will continue to play a role. Uh, but let's not overestimate uh, the fact that it's not as cheap as we thought it was. Okay, thank you. Any further questions before I wrap up? I want to kind of pose a question to... Ah, excellent, there you go. Thank you very much. Irina Lazzarini, Energy Community, Vienna. Um, we heard about um, inertia and from Daniela, and we heard about the 1.5 degrees Celsius, what will happen, and then we heard about the 30 years perspective from the Commission, and I see a clear discrepancy here. So my question is for Daniela, what will happen in 30 years uh, when we finally will become carbon neutral? How will the, look, the world look like? Thank you. What will the world look like if we, if we achieve the target? In 30 years. The, um, the assessment which has been made in the report is how would the world look like in 2100 under a 1.5 degree stabilized scenario. So that's what the, where the major information from the report is. How the world would look like in 2050, of course, depends on the pace which we just discussed in, uh, to reach this 1.5. Because the the pathways which are discussed are um, partly overshooting 1.5 degree or they are slowly 
going towards a 1.5 degree. The impact on ecosystems and uh, on, on natural and human systems are different. Some of the uh, ecosystems cannot recover if we overshoot, for example, to roughly two degree, uh, the warm water corals, as I said before, uh, might not be able to recover. Are, the loss of biodiversity depends on the, the speed uh, of the, the warming, the, the timing of the top warming and the decline. So it is a bit difficult to tell you how the world would look like in 2050, but, um, but for <coughs> sure the, the tendencies and trends which we have seen in the last uh, 50 years with increase in heavy precipitation, increase in heat events, uh, and the associated uh, damage to, uh, to natural and human ecosystems will continue. For sure, we will have much more rain within uh, tropical cyclones, which is something which needs to be mentioned. It's not so often mentioned. Um, we will see also changes in uh, weather pattern, which we are not considering as extremes. Currently, we only look at extremes, but even if we have, uh, let's say, medium changes, um, we talked about it last week in Costa Rica, they are well prepared for heavy precipitation, but if it rains a couple of days with a, with a medium uh, rate, they run into problems. So uh, the, the world will look relatively similar to today, with more extremes in weather and the impacts associated with this. But it really depends on which way we are going. Indeed, indeed. And um, you know, we'll come back to some of these issues in other sessions. I just want to mention one thing. Last week, Friends of Europe uh, launched our citizen survey, where we polled citizens about the future of Europe and how they felt about Europe as a part of our hashtag Europe Matters uh, initiative, which is geared towards defining and agreeing some policy choices for the new commission and parliamentarians in order to, I suppose, it's our contribution to see if we can um, make the project uh, succeed but also be loved and to sustain itself over the long term. And we're building a broad coalition around it. One of the, we asked citizens, and this was a representative sample of citizens across 28 member states, we asked them what should be the priorities of the future commission. And interesting enough we were told that security is key, prosperity is key, but also sustainability. Migration and terror didn't feature as high, but sustainability was really high up there in terms of it's absolutely important that the EU should focus its energy and resources. So majority of citizens saying that climate change and addressing sustainability is key. In that context, I just want to ask one, each of you just one thing, that what, kind of what, what would you say, you've got COP24 coming up, Okay. We've got you know, uh, a sense of uh, movement. We've got elections next year and a new commission. If there was one thing you'd say to the new college of commissioners um, in, in, in relation to this particular agenda, what would it be? Positive inspiration of innovation and development. Is, what does that mean? I think we are, we are driven by by discussions, it is so difficult, it is so expensive, it is unclear how to do it. And I think we need a, a positive, forward-looking mood in our discussions to be able to overcome all those barriers and to face the challenges and to, to make the best out of these challenges in, in innovation, in 
prosperity and mm -hmm. in the okay. way n not leaving people behind. Great, thank you. Mara, you've obviously already completed your policy book for the next commission. Do you want to give us a sneak no, preview? No, I haven't. Really? But, uh, I mean... Uh, Tell us. Okay, the triad you mentioned, security, prosperity, sustainability, mm. in people's mind, it's not three things. It's one and the same thing. Absolutely. And if there's one thing I will say to the new president of the commission, my new commissioner, is our policies must apply that must implement the fact that those things are the same thing. So an integrated, coherent approach to these issues. We need to change our society, our economy, into one that remains prosperous, that's secure, and it's clean, because you can't have a prosperous uh, society like the one we have, because the cost of adaptation, even just that, will overwhelm us. We will already have to cope with the cost of adaptation today. It's not going to go down. What we have is irreversible uh, for centuries. Uh, the things that Daniel was saying is not to make it worse. But if there's one message I would put in my brief to the new college, will be those three things are one and the same thing. By the way, it so happens that's what this college believes in. Uh, and um, there is continuity. Okay. Good to hear. Absolutely consistent with, I think, I actually agree with you in the sense that how citizens completed that question. It's very clear they did see this as being completely connected, but we just don't see it implemented in reality. And I think that's the key issue for us in the future. Um, I think that we need to uh, uh, invest heavily in innovation. And I don't just mean governments and, and uh, technology innovation. Certainly business model innovation is mm. critical. And, and um, uh, things are changing. Things are changing with electrification, um, uh, uh, technology-based uh, 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 energy systems as opposed to resource-based energy systems. Um, huge changes that are going on uh, in the digital space, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that we need to invest in all kinds of innovation. The other thing I would say is that I'm not interested in people's ideology. I'm interested in results. And, and uh, clinging to um, uh, uh, certain technologies because we are, that's our mantra, I don't think is the way to get there. We have to acknowledge that we have to have an all of the above or any of the above approach. We have a range of technologies to enable all of those in a uh, climate, in a uh, emissions constrained world. And we should bury our ideology and do what works. Bury the ideology and do what works like that. Go on. Thank you. The advantage of being last is I can agree with my Earlier speaker, so Mauro saying those three things uh, are interconnected is indeed, that was my primary speech. We call that green growth, right? So we shouldn't look at climate separately from sustainability, not see that separately from economic growth. Uh, and to make that happen, I couldn't agree more. We have to look at innovation, innovation, innovation. And then be prepared that things aren't going to be linear. We see still a lot of linear trends and so on. Uh, both on the side of the impacts, I think we can see surprise. And but what would you say to the new commission president? What's the one you had the ear she? But you never. Know. But what would you say? Hopefully, at the rule book, then there are people out start focusing and.
Please, we've slapped you. We apologise. Good discussion. It's sense. Is the package doesn't. It's uh, we get that into alliances and absolutely. Uh, and so, you know, we can begin and don't deal on this time. Move urgently. And then for the next issue of transformation. Speaker, thank you very much. <laughs>